Thank you, Mr. Duane. It has been a good day in the Lord. It's been a pleasure to be with you all. It's been so encouraging to be here. I know me and my wife has had this great little mini vacation coming up, uh, coming up here, so it's been, been a good day so far. And uh, if you were with us this morning, we were in Luke 24, and we kind of saw how uh, basically the gist of that message was to get you to read your Bibles, I guess you could say, with Christ-centered glasses. So everywhere you see the Bible, see scriptures, you see Jesus Christ. And tonight I thought that we would just take a passage, and I would sort of prove my case for that. (laughs) If it needs proving, I hope I can do that for you tonight. Uh, So you can turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to be in that passage. You might remember this of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or you might remember their other names as, or you might not remember them, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their real names. Uh, Their names were changed, as we'll see in a second. But this is the timeless story, really, of defiance and defense of truth. Remember this, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. King Nebuchadnezzar, you see, if you go back to Daniel 1, really quick, I'll do a brief introduction, really quick, that King Nebuchadnezzar, he invades and he seizes uh, Jerusalem in approximately 597 B.C. And really what he's doing here, he wants to regain some of his former glory. He had just suffered a very devastating defeat at the hands of the Egyptians. He was turned away, and he decides to invade Jerusalem And he does so with devastating results. And the spoils of war really include people. If you look at Daniel chapter chapter 1, look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that is Nebuchadnezzar's, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. And so we see here that those that he brought showed certain promise and certain potential. And these were the people that he wanted to keep. He wanted to assimilate them and then therefore brainwash them into Chaldean Babylonian culture. And he, uh, look at verse 4. Children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and had such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine, which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So these Hebrew hostages were put in this three-year program by which they would be removed everything a part of their Hebrew culture and brought into Chaldean culture, brainwashing them, like I said. And these were, as it says, unblemished specimens. These were people that really showed potential. And what Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to do is just make his kingdom just kind of inflate his reputation. He really was bringing the Babylonian kingdom to its peak, to its zenith of power. And he really just wanted to keep bringing more people, making this culture just the center of, of, of culture in that day. And so they're kept alive, these guys, as you, we know, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're kept alive. And their names are changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Daniel is Belteshazzar. 
And really, that's just another part of their brainwashing. They want nothing to do with their former life. They don't want them to even remember that, so they give them new names that hearken to Chaldean gods. And as, if you remember the story from you know, Sunday school and stuff, you'll remember they're given a, uh, a, a strict uh, diet from the king, his wine and his meat and such, and, the, and they refuse. They refuse to be subjected to this sort of diet. I think it was more than just religious. It was more just we need to keep some sort of the tradition that we have grown up when. We need to remember where we came from. And so they refuse. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he crested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And you remember, they say, for ten days, we're going we're gonna to use our own diet. We're gonna, just going to drink water and vegetables and this. We're going restrict to our, restrict ourselves to this and not uh, partake of the king's diet. And remember, as it says in Daniel, or look at verse uh, 17, excuse me. And as for these children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning. Uh, uh, Gave them knowledge and skill in all learning. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And look at right here in verse 18. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them. And among them them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. God gave them a special a grace, a special knowledge, a special ability to excel in this new, in this foreign culture, in this foreign land, and this, in this obscure part of the world that they were unfamiliar with. And they just excelled. And look at verse 20. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them, get this, ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. So these guys were just flourishing. I think that's just very evident of God's grace and God's presence with them, that they were flourishing in this kingdom. So we come now, just jump over to Daniel 3 now. This is where we get this, uh, this great story of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage and we'll see what we can see. So verse 1 of Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score, six cubits, and the breadth of six cubits. He had set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, uh, three score and six cubits, this is about 90 feet. So if you're, if you're trying to look for some sort of reverence, uh, reference, look for, think of uh, that Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Just think something like that. That's a similar in height. So that's about how tall it was. And he set it up as a symbol of his, um, of his power, his authority. He is asserting his dominance over the realm, his power. He's really flying high. As I said, he was bringing Babylon to its zenith in power, to its peak. And he's showing everyone by this golden image that I am the man, so to speak. So look at verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes and governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and the rulers of all the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, 
that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. Now if you can hear in these verses, it's really repetitive. It, it repeats itself quite a bit in those couple of verses. And I think it just goes to show that this was... This was a big ceremony that Nebuchadnezzar was setting up for himself. This was a big to-do. He thought a lot of himself. So I'm going to have this big ceremony, this big celebration to, to um, coronate this golden image in my name. And I think this also proves that this statue was sort of a unifying statue, a unifying image, both politically and religiously. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar really saw himself as a god. He really thought himself as deity. He thought everyone should come and worship him. So he's this big to-do, this big ceremony, and says that we need to worship me. I need to be worshipped. You know, I think this is also evident that man, mankind always thinks higher and more of himself than he, than he should. You know, the desire to be God is what got us into this mess in the first place. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, listen to what uh, Satan was tempting Eve with. Genesis 3, 4. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and get this, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You see, we have duped ourselves into thinking that we can make better gods than gods. You know, as I said earlier this morning, that we have really gone to a lot of God replacements, and one of those is ourselves. You could say that we all have a God complex. We think we are all gods. And that's why we're in this mess right now. It's because we thought we could do a better job than God could. But going back to the text, verse 6. And I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar is really evidencing. But verse 6. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So everyone then is given this ultimatum that if they have to worship this image or else they will face destruction, annihilation in this fiery furnace, they're going to face execution but as the time for worship approach, we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't fall down, they don't worship, and they defy this decree from Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 8. Wherefore, at that time, the certain Chaldeans came near. These guys, we'll get to them in a second. We, these, has, these guys have a problem with these Hebrew three. They have a problem. And so here they are. They're kind of, they are snitching on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so to speak. So here they are. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They're sucking up to him. Thou, thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worship that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. You know, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. 
So they come into the courtroom of Nebuchadnezzar and they are telling their tattletales. They're telling on the Hebrew three. These guys, they're, they're not following you. They're defying you. You know, these were the magicians from chapter 2. If you remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he's very perplexed by this dream. And he goes actually to these Chaldeans, these magicians and astrologers, and they're supposed to be the wise men of the kingdom. And they basically say, we can't help you. We have no idea what this dream means. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar is so irate at, that they cannot help him interpret this dream that he's about to kill them. He's about to murder all these Chaldeans. And then Daniel, he is able to interpret this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. So I think in that, in this right here, they are a little jealous. They're jealous, especially, that these guys have flourished, as we saw from chapter 1. They have just rose and rose, and they excelled, and they flourished in this new, this new kingdom, this new culture. And now they have just made them look silly by interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And now they are taking even a step further, and they're defying him altogether. So they, they've had it. They're, this is the last straw. This is the last straw. And Nebuchadnezzar is naturally enraged. He's furious. Look at verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. You know, he, he is furious. Who would even dare to defy me? I am God. You, you think you're going to question my deity? That's what he's thinking. He viewed himself as God, and he is mad when anyone tries to question that. And so the Hebrew three, as I like to call them, the Hebrew three, they're brought into the king's courtroom and where they'll, they'll, they'll meet their fate, so to speak. Look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And really, really quick, I think here we see that Nebuchadnezzar favorites these guys. Instead of just giving them their, their fate right then and there, he gives them a second chance. Look at this. He gives them a second chance. King Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of, the bur of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So he's showing his favoritism again here. He's saying, I'm going to give you a second chance. I really like you guys. I have promoted you. If you look at verses 48 and 49 of chapter 2, he promotes these four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be rulers in his kingdom. He really likes these guys. And he gives them a second chance, reminding them that if they don't obey, they're facing certain death by flames. But these Hebrew three, they don't obey. They don't obey what Nebuchadnezzar says. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. This is amazing. They are so steadfast in their face that they say, yeah, we understand the consequences, and we're still not going to do it. This is an amazing display of faith and courage 
That by either life or death, they determined to glorify God. That we don't need, this is basically what they're saying, we don't need to explain ourselves to you. We don't answer to you. We answer to God. God very well could deliver us. He has that power. He controls everything. He could deliver us out of anything that he wants. But even if he doesn't, we will remain faithful to him. But if not... You know, they knew the consequences, and yet their faith was still not shaken. You know, I'm reminded of just what we saw recently out in Oregon. You know, those shootings that happened at that college, and we were told that the shooter was asking people, are you a Christian? And if they responded yes, he would shoot them in the head. And if they responded no, he would shoot them in the leg. And I can honestly say to you that I don't know if I would have the guts to in that moment with a gun to my head say, yes, I am a Christian. I don't know if I could. I want to say that I can. I want to say that I could be able to say that. But the amazing display of bravery by those people he executed at that college is is amazing to me. The courage for Christ and saying, yes, I am a Christian, knowing that they would see Christ in their next blink. That's amazing to me. And the same thing here, that these young men, they knew that they would see God soon. (laughs) They knew that they would see God. They would be cast into the flames. And they say, we are not going to obey you, king. They knew their power originated in God. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will. You know, this is the difference between knowledge and belief. Knowledge and belief between head and heart understanding. It's important to know that knowledge is important. We have to know about God, but we have to believe that he is able to do what he has said he will do. You know, there's a lot of people that know a lot about God. They know a lot of things about God, but they don't believe in God. And there's the big difference. There's the big difference. We can recognize what God can do without believing that he is able to do all those things. You know, it says in James that even the demons know about God but that's not enough. They don't believe. The difference between knowledge and belief, Martin Luther defines it this way, that belief or faith is a living, a daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and so certain that the believer who has stake his life on it a thousand times over. That's belief, a living, a daring confidence in God. It also proves this, that death is safe for a believer Death is a safe thing if you are a Christian. Not because we're cavalier and we're just doing everything willy-nilly and we're being brash and bold and careless with our lives, but because we're confident and bold in Jesus Christ and in what he's done. That's why we can face, like those young students out in Oregon or these young men here, we can face situations that that uh, that are in danger of death and we can be bold and confident in it because of what Jesus has done. And so this, I believe, too, is what true belief and faith in the gospel looks like. This is what it does. It conjures up true belief, true courage. You know, one writer says it this way, to live a life of scandalous generosity. That's what the gospel does. It gives us, it frees us to live a life of scandalous generosity, unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. That's what the gospel does. You know, this is what gospel living looks like, that we have courage and confidence because of Christ. 
Look at, or you can listen, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 says this, In whom, that is Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence by faith in him. That's what Jesus does. He establishes our confidence. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 says this, In such trust or in such confidence have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. That's what these Hebrew 3, they displayed. Their confidence was in God, knowing that He was all-sufficient. Constantly, daily, and perpetually reminding ourselves of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, frees us to be bold and courageous like these young men here. It frees us to, get this, spend our lives giving instead of taking and going back instead of getting to the front and in sacrificing ourselves for others instead of sacrificing others for ourselves. That's what the free life looks like. You know, Jesus has secured everything that we need. Remember Second Peter chapter 1? Verse 3 says this, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. You see, therefore, since we already have all things, as it says, we don't need anyone from, anything, from anyone else. We are free to give of ourselves for everyone. That's what this free life looks like. That's why they have courage here. These Hebrew three have courage because of their stand on Jesus Christ. And even more amazing, they didn't have the New Testament to read about Jesus. They just had some of their Old Testament to read. They were probably reading Isaiah or whatnot. And they were remembering that this was the prophesied Messiah that would come. And that's what they're staking their claim on. And this only enrages Nebuchadnezzar even more than he's already mad. He is just full of fury. He's seething with rage. Look at verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. He commanded his men to make this way hotter than it should ever be heated before. So much so that it was just almost as hot as, as, as like the surface of the sun. He was so incensed that he didn't want these guys to burn. He wanted to just inviscerate them on the spot. He wanted them to be swallowed up by the flames. You know, when I think of this furnace... I usually think of uh, those glass-blowing furnaces. Have you ever seen someone blow glass? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? They have that big, long stick, and they stick it into that furnace, and they get that dollop of, of molten, liquidy glass. It's in this goop, oozy form. And they stick it on that stick, and they start blowing it, and they mold it. It's just fascinating to watch. I love watching that. It's so cool to see how they do that. And I've, I've been told and I've read that they heat that furnace over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And I don't know about you, that's really, that's really hot. <laughs> that's very hot. So if you can imagine a, a furnace like that, and then the king says, seven times more than that. I want it to be just so hot that as soon as they touch it, they're just going to be eviscerated on the spot. And so his mighty men do this. They, they heat up the furnace and look at verse 20. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments and were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. 
And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, I think this is funny, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It slew those guys that were taking them up. So these guys that were taking them up and trying to put them in the furnace, they too were caught in the flames. It was so hot, so raging. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And this is where we see the glory of the story right here, verse 24 and following. This is the glory of the story because in the midst of these flames, another figure appears. Another person appears with them. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto thee, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking around in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the, of the fourth is like the Son of God. You know, I have no doubts in saying this. I have no qualms about saying that this fourth figure was Jesus Christ. This is what we would call a Christophany or a theophany, which is what, we, what, what, what is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He, you can see these all throughout your Old Testament. Usually uh, it'll, appear at, it'll appear by the phrase angel of the Lord or something like that. He appears to Jacob and Moses and a bunch of other figures throughout your Old Testament. And it's actually Jesus in the flesh appearing to people before his incarnation, before Luke 2 and all that kind of stuff. This is a Christophany and a very powerful one. A very powerful Christophany. Because if you remember from Isaiah 43, Jesus Christ himself promised that this, Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. But when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. That, this is a graphic fulfillment of that promise, that when thou walkest through the fire, you won't be burned. I'm sure these guys were never expecting to experience that firsthand, and now they are. They're walking through the flames, and they're not burned. Jesus is in there with them. And he brings them through the fire. And the results of their rescue and deliverance are just, they're just mind-boggling. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes and governors and captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Can you imagine that? They didn't even smell like fire. I don't know if, have you, you, I'm sure you've been around a bonfire, you know, like camps and stuff, and you're roasting marshmallows and all that good times. And even just sitting around a bonfire, your, smoke, or your, your clothes stink of smoke. For days, they smell of smoke until you wash them about three times. They smell like smoke just sitting around it. And these guys are in the flames and they emerge and nothing is burned. Not a hair on their head. They don't even, as I said, they don't even smell like smoke. 
And I think this is just the, uh, an evidence of the comprehensiveness and the, just the completeness of God's deliverance and God's protection. And from having people worship himself, look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. Verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything against amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other god that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You know what is interesting as I said, from having people worship himself, he recognizes and turns and says everyone needs to remember this God. But what's important, that this move by Nebuchadnezzar is not repentance. Unfortunately, I can't say that this is not, Nebuchadnezzar does not repent here. He's not saying this is the only God. He's just recognizing that this is another God that we need to, re- to respect. He's adding it to the list in the catalog of, of the of the polytheism of his culture and saying, this is another God we need to worship. And unfortunately, his recognition was not enough. He needed to repent. But the story, as powerful as it is, what's the point of it besides just history? I just read a lot of history to you. What's the point? You know, it's not about mustering up a a defense and a revolt against the government. We shouldn't just always do what these guys here and just defy every decree from the king. You know, it's not also about self-help and finding some sort of courage in and of ourselves to, to go against the flow and to, to defy the odds. That's not what this story is here for. The story, as we saw this morning, is here to point us to a greater rescue and a greater deliverance that would come. That is, just as as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the flames, we were once as well in the flames. If you remember, Zechariah described the life of a believer as this, uh, Zechariah 3.2, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even as the Lord hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? So you see tonight, everyone who is here that is saved, you were just like that. A brand that Jesus plucked out of the flames, out of the fires of hell, God has saved you. You see, without Jesus, we are doomed to die in the pit of hell. As it says in Revelation chapter 20, a lake of fire. And until we realize and recognize that, we'll never be free. Until we see that we're absolutely incapable of saving ourselves, we'll never rejoice over Christ's salvation. You see, that's what this passage, I think, reminds me of. That we are in the flames by birth. You know, you don't come out of your mother's womb neutral, morally neutral, and then you decide to sin. You come out sinner. You come out one who is seeking everything for himself, needing God's salvation and needing a whole lot of mercy. (laughs) And that's what we see here, that just as the Son of God met these Hebrew three in the fire, so does Jesus meet us. Jesus, you see, he has stepped in to our madness, to our mayhem, to our mess in this world to show us his mercy. God's, as Spurgeon everywhere called it, God's, excuse me, gracious condescension. 
That is our only hope. God's gracious condescension into our world. That is our only hope. The light of all the world invades our darkness, our sinful world, to bring about redemption. Isaiah 63 says this, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's talking about Jesus. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. This reminds us, just as I said this morning, that the plot line of the Bible is Jesus-centered. And just as we run away from God, God runs after us. As we flee, Jesus follows, and he gives chase. He follows us all the way to the cross. And all throughout Scripture, we are seen as absolutely desperate, absolutely destitute of hope. And Jesus is seen as the perfect deliverer. The heartbeat, you could say, of the Bible is redemption of the lost. Over and over again, we're given story and story and evidence and evidence of Jesus coming to lost people and healing them. Jesus coming to destitute people and saving them by his grace. God condescends. The Father comes down. You know, the two greatest words in your whole Bible are these from Ephesians chapter 2. But God. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me really quick. Ephesians chapter 2. Read a couple of verses here. Because I want you to see just how amazing these two words are. Look at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he has loved us, That is so amazing that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were the children of wrath, as it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. He raises us up, verse 6, and he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith and not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of our works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The Bible is really just that. It's, it's realizing that we are in this desperate situation, but God. We are in this terrible situation, this horrible situation, this horrible culture that's, that's saying that there's nothing, that there's no truth, everything is just, you're able to do, there's just all these morals, they don't even matter anymore. But God, His grace persists. Thank goodness for that. You know, as, uh, that's what the heavenly, or that's what the Bible is. It's, it's a heavenly tale of a father that sees his prodigals afar off. And he hikes up his robe and he runs out to them. You remember that from Luke chapter 15 where the father sees his son afar off and he runs out to him. That's what your Bible is all about. The Bible is a story of how God, he perfectly meets our rebellion with his rescue and our sin with his salvation and our guilt with his grace. 
As I said this morning, it's not a book about the redeemed. It's a book about the Redeemer. The perfect Redeemer who, as this story shows, He comes into our mess. One uh, theologian said it this way, The Bible is not a record of man's groping after God, but it's the record of the revelation of God to men. Jesus' sacrifice and salvation is infinitely superior to anything that we could ever offer. I want to tell you that God's love and approval of you doesn't ride on you. Isn't that a good thing? It doesn't ride on you. It's not on your shoulders. Your deliverance doesn't rest on your transformation, but Jesus' substitution. That's what it rests on. Jesus substituting himself for you. The good news isn't that I would die for Jesus in my boldness, in my confidence. The good news is Jesus died for me. You know, Run Ryder said it this way, Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable or improve the improvable or correct the correctable. He simply came to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of a life he cannot. That's what he came to do. He came to be the life for those, as it says in Ephesians, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You could say this, that Christianity isn't you some sort of white-knuckling God by your, by your goodness, by your performance, by your strength, by your ability. You're not white-knuckling God. God is gripping you by a cross, which is so much more powerful and so much more beautiful than anything we could ever do. Spurgeon, as I said this morning, I love to read. He says this, this is the foundation for what he's about to say. Because God is gracious... It's a foregone conclusion that God is gracious and merciful. Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that can ever be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. That's why people are saved. The redemption that Jesus has accomplished and secured for us on the cross not only redeems and rescues us from condemnation, as it says in Romans chapter 8, it also clothes you in Jesus' very righteousness. It's Jesus' perfection that you put on. First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians 5:21 says, "For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him." You see, the beauty of the story is it also shows us this, that as you stand before the Father, you have no sin on you. You know, just as these, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stepped out of the flames, they had no sin on, they had no smoke on them, they had no smell of smoke on them, they had no uh, flames that had caused them any damage, they came out unscathed, unharmed. And so are we saved we are saved to the uttermost that by Christ's righteous grace, when God sees us, he sees his son. You could say that there's not even the smell of sin on us because we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness, which is perfect. So when you stand before the Father, you stand in Christ's righteousness. Colossians says this, that he nails your horrible record, your horrible account to the cross, and he gives you his righteous record. Jesus makes a perfect transaction whereby he takes your guilt and he gives you his righteousness. There's not even the smell of sin on us. That's why we can say 
this with Spurgeon. Let Jesus be your all in all, and let free grace be the one line in which you live and move. For there is no life like that of the one who lives in the favor of God. It's because we believe that Jesus has come into our mess, come into the flames of sin of our world, and he has stepped in and taken upon himself to substitute himself for us. That's why we can stand. That's why we can make this bold declaration like these young men here. It's because Christ is in the furnace with you. Jesus is in the flames. And through the fire, Jesus is with you. In the midst of this fiery furnace, Christ rescues us. And we can rejoice because Jesus has, been, has rec- rescued us from those flames. So there's really only two questions or two responses, I would say, that if you are a believer, you can remember this story and you can reflect and you can rejoice in the fact that you have been rescued from the flames, as it says in Zechariah, a brand plucked out of the fire. Or if you are an unbeliever, you can recognize, but go further. You can repent. See, Nebuchadnezzar just recognized, and he didn't repent. He saw the power of God right before him, but he didn't go all the way. He didn't repent and believe. That's what's required. The only requirement of salvation is this, that you come to Jesus with nothing in your hands and believe on him fully. As Spurgeon says, Believe on the free grace of God. That's what this story shows us. That's what it shows me. That Jesus has rescued us from the flames and he is there with us in the fire. Let's pray.